This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. This day marks a significant milestone in the history of Corbynism, the last day of Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as leader of the Labour Party. Over the course of this podcast, we've explored many different aspects of his leadership, from the anti-Semitism crisis to his economic plan and beyond. However, no post-mortem of Corbynism would be complete without a thorough examination of the anti-imperialist politics Jeremy Corbyn built his entire political career on. Before his ascent to the Labour leadership, Jeremy Corbyn's role as chair of the campaign group Stop the War Coalition marked him among allies as the left's foreign secretary. But what exactly is Corbynite foreign policy? Over the course of his leadership, Corbyn's foreign policy positions were heavily scrutinised in the press. Over his response to the Assad regime's chemical weapons attacks in Syria, the poisoning of a former Russian double agent by the GRU in Salisbury, and military intervention against Islamic State. In all instances, Corbyn failed to have any meaningful impact on the government's foreign policy from opposition, and in some cases did huge amounts of damage to Labour's popularity with the electorate on matters of national security. But what would foreign policy have looked like with Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister? And while his supporters frequently cited his record of support for human rights, how does that record stand up to scrutiny? Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katerji. On this episode, to discuss foreign policy, anti-imperialism and who stands on the right side of history, we are joined by the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Conservative MP Tom Tugendhat, and, also sitting on the select committee, the SNP's defence spokesperson, Stuart MacDonald. For a Labour perspective, we are also privileged to be joined by former foreign policy advisor to Robin Cook, David Clark. Before we start, I'd love to thank everyone who has supported Corbynism the Postmortem so far. Now, with the leadership election over, there will be new projects to announce in the very near future. And I'd like to thank everyone again who has so far signed up to my Patreon. This podcast is a 100% solo project and is currently my only source of income, so I want to give a huge thanks to all of you who have helped make this possible with your small monthly donations. If you'd like to support the show and help me create my next project, please consider becoming a subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash or donating via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash And now, on with the show. Hello Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Hey Oz, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, very good. Um, so Tom, obviously you're a Conservative, so our listeners have to bear that in mind with your answers, but seeing as Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy was going to end up going through the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, which you're the chair of, you were going to be scrutinising his foreign policy, and we haven't really given room for the opposition point of view to uh, Labour yet so far, so we're kind of tying things up here. So because I've asked everyone this, I'm going to ask you this as well. What did Corbynism get right? Uh, frankly, not not very much. I mean, from my perspective, of course, what he got right is he enabled uh, two conservative 
victories, the second one uh, a pretty thumping uh, majority, at a time when many people thought the country was divided and wouldn't be able to agree on much. But uh, the prospect of uh, Corbyn in number 10 uh, clarified minds and uh, and enabled um, my party and and uh, and, and friends to uh, to achieve a, a majority when it looked unlikely. That's not going to go down very well with our very la- labour audience. <laughs> I'm afraid it's true. So, yeah. uh... <laughs> well, that's fair enough. How would you sum up Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy? Well, it's odd. I think it's rather fixed from his uh, from when he sort of. You know, first was protesting because it it, it really reminds me of the anti-imperialist struggle um, that sort of comes out of the Leninist idea of imperialism, uh, and and then was expressed in the uh, in the Vietnam marches uh, when you know imperialism meant something that was wrong, and if you were a Soviet, you couldn't be an imperialist because imperialism was always wrong. So so for example, the invasion of Afghanistan was not imperialism, but the invasion of Vietnam was, uh, and it and it's a very it's a very odd view, but it, it it then sees sort of various partners around the world. And you see this in, in, in the Northern Ireland element as well. I mean, people sort of question why Jeremy Corbyn is, uh, was so connected to a particular faction of the uh, armed movement in Northern Ireland and not, for example, the peaceful movement under the SDLP. But of course, people like Gerry Adams weren't emerging from a sort of Catholic Irish nationalism, but from a Marxist tradition uh, of uh, revolution in Northern Ireland. And and I think that's really where we start to see the overlap of his foreign policy and domestic policy in in the UK, that sort of Marxist uh, anti-imperialist internationalism. So one of the things that I came across with Jeremy Corbyn when I was getting to learn about his record is that, for example, he had protested against the uh, Russian bombing of Chechnya. However, years later, when Russian crimes were back again in the um, in the forefront of the public mind, uh, such as in Syria, there was really no response from Corbyn about the war in Syria or Russia's war in Syria, as it were. He was much more focused on the Western element of things. So how do you think Corbyn's foreign policy would have dealt with an imperialist power like Russia? Well, first of all, he quite clearly doesn't recognize Russia as imperialist. He, he, he doesn't use that term with it. Uh, and, and he certainly didn't recognize, for example, uh, what was, uh, if not an act of war, then certainly a warlike act, the, the chemical uh, attack on the UK uh, in Salisbury when the uh, Skripals were uh, attacked. He didn't recognize it for what it was. And he's, he doesn't seem to recognize the, the violence in Syria or indeed in Libya, uh, as part of um, uh, Russian imperialist ambitions, what he seems to re- think it is, 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 is you know, a civil war in which Russia is merely one of many belligerents. And so it's a very, it, it's a very disjointed, actually, foreign policy, because it all relies on opposition. It relies on opposition to imperialism, and imperialism focused on the United States. And so, in a sense, it's actually rather uncoordinated rather than rather than coherent so you you brought up the Skripal poisoning i'd like to go into that in, into more detail let's say jeremy corbyn was prime minister how do you think in your opinion the response to that act would have would have unfolded under him well, well i suspect strongly that he would not have called out uh russia he would not have built up the international coalition uh, to uh, to defend the UK's interests, and I suspect very strongly that what we would have seen is 
is is a much more emboldened Russia. Now, you know, I don't think for a moment that means that we'd have seen you know Russian troops landing at Dover or whatever. But uh, but I do think that what it would have meant was that uh, we would have seen more incidents and 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 more obvious incidents of the number of incidents that actually we've seen around uh, Europe in recent years. I mean, you know, let's not forget that the, the Skripal. Uh, attack does not sit alone. But, uh, you know, a year or two earlier, uh, the Russian government attempted to murder the Prime Minister of Montenegro. Uh, They've spread huge amounts of false information uh, about refugee numbers in uh, Germany. Uh, The Russian government has occupied and seized uh, a part of uh, a foreign country by taking uh, Crimea. They are currently sponsoring militias and occupying uh, large areas of eastern Ukraine. You know, I, I can keep going. I mean, I'm, forgive me, but it becomes a rather boring and rather uh, sad list. But all of these uh, incidents, you know, they, they need to be stood up to. Otherwise, they, they continue. And I, I strongly suspect that a Corbyn uh, administration would not have been willing to stand up uh, even uh, for the attack on the UK. And therefore, what we would have seen is is rather more of the sort of the slow corruption uh, and undermining of the UK institutions that um, sadly has been all too frequent around around Europe. So NATO seems to be quite a, a sort of historical sticking point for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, when, when Ukraine was invaded by Russia, Jeremy Corbyn published an article in the Morning Star blaming it on NATO's belligerence, saying NATO was effectively trying to expand and that was the reason why Russia had suddenly decided it was fit to invade a sovereign country. How would our NATO allies have reacted to someone like Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister and responding to the invasion of Ukraine in the manner that he did? Well, I, I mean, there's, there's a common meme that is that is shared by... Um, supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, I, I don't know if it's shared by him himself, but uh, of showing NATO uh, symbols uh, sort of around uh, Russia as though it is NATO that is encircling uh, Russia. This is clearly complete rubbish. These are, first of all, it includes um, Japan in that, which is somewhat bizarre because Japan isn't a NATO country. But the um, but the, the the point that is trying to be made is that NATO is the aggressor, rather than recognising that actually what NATO has done uh, in the last 70 years is maintain uh, peace in Europe. In fact, by not just by stopping the Russians invading, but actually by stopping uh, many European powers fighting each other by being uh, instead being allied. And so there's there's a failure to recognise what it is people are signing up to and that these are independent sovereign states, democratic states who have decided to share security together and instead sees it as some sort of, you know, imperialist envoy of of, of an aggressive United States, which is simply not true. And so I think many people in in NATO would have found it very difficult uh, to deal with this mindset because it doesn't just question the alliance, it questions their very independence as countries you know if if you're an estonian today questioning nato legitimacy is actually saying that your independence is irrelevant and that you should be a satellite of russia you should be invaded questioning nato if you're in you know lithuania today is really stating that you have no independent right of self-determination and that the fact that you have a large neighbor means that you should shut up and take orders from the large neighbor now, those are really, really difficult things for our NATO partners to accept for very obvious reasons. 
So, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, he he this is a this is a misinterpretation. And Jeremy Corbyn is trying to stop a belligerent West from, you know, playing world police. And actually, he's actually really opposed to Russian human rights abuses. He just doesn't focus on it because, you know, the West is clearly he has power and influence over the West. How would you respond to that? Uh, that's a I mean, forgive me, I know you're only playing devil's advocate, but uh, but it's a laughable interpretation. You know, if if you look at the Stop the War coalition that he was so instrumental in building and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and supporting, it, it never protests um, Russian malign activity or certainly hasn't in, 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 in recent decades. It, it's entirely focused on the United States and the UK. Well, you could throw, you could throw Israel and Saudi Arabia into that as well. You could, yes, and and uh, but it but it doesn't focus. I mean, given given the argument that you make, and that I have heard others make, is he can't influence Russia, so why bother? Well, he can't influence the United uh, he can't influence the United States, and he can't influence the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and he can't influence Israel either. But he seems to bother with those. So it's clearly not just about that, and and it does raise huge questions as to whether. You know the uh, connections, the historic connections between the Communist Party of Great Britain and the old Soviet Union, uh, the funding that used to go through the Soviet International, and the connections to the KGB, and now, of course, the SVR have any have any links at all? Now, I mean, these are all rumours, but uh, you know, there has been a long pattern of uh, Russian intelligence connection to foreign political activity. So I, I want to move on to to we'll touch on Saudi Arabia and Israel a bit slightly later on, but I wanted to talk about Iran first and Jeremy Corbyn's relationship with Iran. Obviously, he appeared on Iranian state television. He was a guest speaker at an event commemorating the Iranian Revolution. Um, he's been quite a, a vociferous defender of Tehran in the international sphere, um, arguing for normalisation, for sanctions relief. If Jeremy Corbyn's policies were to come under the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, um, trying to normalise relations with Iran, I know obviously the British government's perspective is different from the Trump administration's perspective um, and was much more aligned with the Obama administration's uh, attempt to bring Iran in from the cold. But how would an attempt by Jeremy Corbyn to completely readdress our relationship with Iran? Well, I mean, many people have been struggling with the relationship with Iran for many years. This is not something that I think anybody finds easy because quite clearly you, you're dealing with uh, an extremely uh, important country in the Middle East and one with which you know, everybody wishes to have really good relations uh, and yet we're also dealing with a theocracy uh, that sees no issue at all with uh, hostage-taking as a means of foreign policy. I mean, the most obvious example of this, of course, is Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, but actually there are many others, uh, sees it as perfectly uh, legitimate to execute homosexuals, uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to see LGBT rights as uh, causes of death rather than causes of freedom. Um and so it's a it's a very difficult regime to work with, but you know looking for ways to make this work is 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 what governments are constantly trying to do now you know the the u k has so far been much more aligned with France, Germany, and as you rightly say the 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 Obama regime than it has with the trump regime um but finding some way to move forward is 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 incredibly important and uh uh, you know, nobody's against reaching out, but it's it's if the money that 
is then ploughed into the Iranian government, simply goes on to killing hundreds of thousands of Sunni Muslims, which is effectively what um, the, 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 the relief that came from the, from the Obama deal, the JCPOA, went to. It went into the war in Syria. It didn't go into hospital building in Tehran. And it, and it was used quite deliberately to kill uh, hundreds of thousands of Sunni Muslims. Then, you know, you've got to ask yourself, is that outreach actually conducive to peace or is it merely furthering war? Well, I mean, again, the, I suppose the way the way that Jeremy Corbyn would approach this would say that the Iranian people who are being sanctioned aren't aren't guilty of the crimes that the regime is guilty of. So why should they suffer? Um, but again, I, I'm not sure he's putting forward anything that would counter Iran's influence in Iraq. I say influence the the murder campaigns they've been carrying out in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and so forth. So, um, you know. It's kind of like what what is the policy there besides normalization? But as you see, I, I sympathise entirely, and and you know, I uh, I, I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough for the for the you know for the for the Iranian people who I've uh, had the great privilege of meeting and working with uh, around the world. Um, but the reality is, I I see no reason why we should uh, allow funding to go to what has been one of the most violent war machines in the Middle East and has and has very actively murdered uh, thousands and thousands of people, uh, mostly uh, Sunni Muslims, actually, very occasionally Jews, but mostly Sunni Muslims uh, in, in and around the region. Um, you know, that is what the Iranian government has done since 1979. Let's not, let's not belittle it. Now, the biggest victims, of course, of the theocracy are not uh, other countries, but the Iranian people themselves. I mean, they have been uh, living under a vicious police state. And so while I sympathize with the idea of lifting sanctions because of uh, the, the suffering that the Iranian people are under, I mean, I, I, I don't think anybody argues with that. Um, the reality is that we can't do it if all we're doing is pouring fuel onto a fire that is bringing death to to, to people around the region. You touched on sanctions there. Um Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn, during the run-up to the uh, vote to intervention in Syria against uh, the Islamic State group, Jeremy Corbyn was very insistent that the way to combat them was not with the RAF, but with cutting off their funding, which is something he never has seemed to uh, bring about, about the you know Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Uh, he's never brought it up about Hezbollah. You know, Cutting off funding for these groups is not a problem when they're being funded by the Iranian government, but you know, supposedly his 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 misguided belief that governments um, in the Middle East were funding Islamic State um, took priority in his way of dealing with the situation. Well, I think you're right. And it's one of the, it's, it's one of the uh, extraordinary um, uh, things that we've seen in uh, recent years is, is his willingness to sort of differentiate between those he sees as partners of imperialism and those he sees as anti-imperialist. And Iran, no matter how many people it kills through uh, the IRGC, as you mentioned, or Hezbollah, uh, who has murdered more Lebanese than uh, anybody else, certainly murdered more Lebanese than than, than uh, Israelis, and in recent years murdered more Syrians than, than many other groups uh, around. You know, those are, those are okay, as it were. Um, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe overstating it, but those are those are organisations that he sees uh, maybe mistaken, but at least uh, you know have have a legitimacy in their in their defence. 
but organizations that he sees as linked to 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 the West, he doesn't recognize in any way their uh, their ability to defend themselves or their desire to defend themselves. Jeremy Corbyn's obviously been outspoken about the Saudi theocracy, their human rights abuses, their their violations in Yemen, which are, you know, partially supported by the British government, um, at least logistically. Um, so, so my question is, you know, Je- Jeremy Corbyn wanted to hold your government to account on, you know, rights violations in Saudi Arabia. The way you talk about Iran as a as a violent theocracy can equally be applied to Saudi Arabia. So do you not think your opposition to this comes from Jeremy pointing out government hypocrisy and saying, well, essentially saying he's going to pivot away from Saudi Arabia towards Iran? Well, uh, in that, I think uh, I think Jeremy's got a point. I mean, you know, I think I, I think Saudi Arabia, frankly, has got uh, many questions to answer. And I don't, uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to find myself as a spokesman or a defender of Iran on, on, on your podcast, because I would find it uh, extremely difficult to do. Um, I think instead, what we should be doing is looking at how uh, UK foreign policy uh, and indeed, you, you know, international foreign policy is geared towards undermining these, um, the, the, these totalitarian systems. Now, there is a difference between the two, uh, and I'm afraid it may be it may be a shallow one, but it is a, it is a difference, and that's that uh, Saudi Arabia has been cooperating with the UK on intelligence and and in in trying to fight uh, terrorism that has come towards our shores. Iran, on the contrary, has been funding it. Now, while I can understand the hypocrisy, you'll forgive me as the representative of British people whose duty is to defend British people uh, that I will. Uh, at least view uh, cooperation on security matters that protects British people as something that I would prioritise. So on to an- another thing would be Israel and the settlements, which you know the British government have a long history of, of official opposition to. However, there seems to be very little in the way of action to to bring about a constructive peace, whereas Jeremy Corbyn has focused much of his life on holding the Israeli government to account. Would you not take that on board and say that actually maybe Jeremy Corbyn takes the situation more seriously than the British government has for many decades? Well, I certainly think that uh, Jeremy Corbyn has, has demonstrated an active interest in the Palestinian side of the argument, and, I, and, and that I, I recognise. But uh, by his own admission, he's never been to Israel and never met an Israeli, uh, sorry, an Israeli leader. And, and so it's very hard to see somebody as in any way a negotiator for peace or a spokesman for peace if they'll only speak to one side of an argument. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn's a hypocrite in in the sense that he refused to meet Donald Trump based on probably very legitimate reasons. However, he was more than happy to meet Xi Jinping, who is currently running concentration camps for Muslims. He is, um, you know, more than happy to state his uh, blunt opposition to the Saudi, brutal Saudi theocracy, whereas he's more than happy to stand on a platform and praise Iran's uh, treatment of minorities, which is a grotesque revisionist lie of how they actually treat minorities. So I'm, I'm trying to understand how his foreign policy works really in 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 practice well i mean you you've set out the argument i mean you know the idea that the bahai community or the christian community or the jewish community in uh in in iran is treated with anything other than brutal repression is is simply a lie i mean it's it's just not true it's not it's not a matter of opinion it's not a matter of debate it is not true um 
Now, I, I accept, by the way, that largely the same is true of the treatment in, in Saudi Arabia. And I, I, you know, I'm not, uh, I, as I say, I am far from being a spokesman or defender uh, of, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But the, uh, the, the, the problem is that if the only perspective, if the only metric through which you view the world is whether or not somebody is pro or against the United States, then it's going to lead you into some very strange alliances. And I'm afraid that's exactly what it's done. Uh, in um, the, the, the Corbynista um, foreign policy. South America is obviously another part of the world that Jeremy Corbyn's taken a particular interest. And when you look at some of the Western um, influences, shall we say, uh, in that region over the, you know, the late 20th century, um, he would probably have a point that um, American influence has had a malign impact on on these regions. He's also seen the Cuban dictatorship favourably and Nicolas Maduro favourably. So how would you respond to Jeremy Corbyn's kind of favourable view of these more authoritarian left-wing regimes? Again, I, I mean, I, I find it very difficult to differentiate between the dictatorship uh, in uh, Venezuela and the dictatorship in, say, uh, you know, part of, well, in other countries in the region at various times, both of them are, um, or many of them are, are sort of uh, are military dictatorships of an old school with some form of a, an elite governing uh, with brutality over a, over a, um, a, a, a massive population that is that is left to starve and, in many cases, treated abominably. And and that's what we're seeing in Venezuela. That's what we've seen in Cuba. You know, it's it's a very oppressive system. We don't see many people swimming from Florida to get to Cuba. We see thousands and thousands of people going the other way. You know, if people are voting with their feet, they're probably doing it for a reason. And it's not just uh, that they've been conned. It's that they realize that living under tyranny is, is uh, abhorrent. And when you see the, the, the situation that's happened in Venezuela, his endorsement for the Chavez uh, system is, is, is really, I mean, it would, it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic um, that it's, you know, that's not to defend uh, America in the region. I'm, I'm certainly not going to do that, and I'm not a spokesman for the United States, nor would I be. Um, I think the United States has made mistakes in the region. But the the idea that these, these brutal left-wing dictatorships who have murdered hundreds of thousands of their own people are in any way the cure is, I'm afraid, simply not true. And their partnership in, in many areas, when it's with groups like The Shining Path, uh, or indeed with the uh, the FARC, where they've uh, done partnerships with other Marxist movements around the world, like the IRA, um, sees that the connection of this sort of anti-American imperialist uh, perspective is something that we see, sadly, all too frequently. So I guess Jeremy Corbyn would defend himself by saying that his foreign policy is about human rights and it's human rights focused and it's human rights who's, first. Who's, who's <laughs> well, human well rights? exactly. But but I'm guessing what you're you're arguing is that Jeremy Corbyn splits the world into two spheres: the imperialist pro-American sphere and the anti-imperialist anti-American sphere. And that countries that are in the anti-American anti-imperialist sphere deserve less scrutiny of their human rights uh, compared to ones you know, in the other sphere, as it were. How can you be pro-human rights if you're willing to share a platform with a theocratic dictatorship like Iran that murders uh, gay people for simply being gay? How can you be pro-human rights if you are pro uh, a Maduro regime in Venezuela uh, that sees nothing to uh, totally crippling an economy in order to enrich itself, uh, leading hundreds of thousands into poverty uh, and indeed starvation and death? 
these aren't pro-human rights policies. These are utterly brutal, repressive, and vicious policies. And to support the regimes that do it does not make you pro-human rights. It, it puts you on the side of evil. My final question to you, this is another issue that's very close to my heart and actually something that I, I've, I've found a lot of agreement with Jeremy Corbyn, is that his response to refugees has been a lot more open um, than the Conservative Party. He wants more refugees to come to the country, whereas the Conservatives have voted consistently against allowing larger amounts of refugees from Syria. You know, we're not intervening to defend them against the Assad regime. They're stranded in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Jordan. Surely we should be doing our part to bring more over. So it's. I want to end this on a note of saying I, I agree with Jeremy Corbyn on this and I disagree strongly with the Conservative government on this. And, and surely that this is a, a moral question that, that maybe Jeremy is right to, to, you know, attack the Conservatives over. Look, this is something where I think that there is legitimate debate. Um, but I would say that... Uh, the reason that Jeremy and you are wrong on this is because the uh, the UK government is already the single largest European donor and the largest global donor to uh, refugees in the region, second only to the United States, uh, and is giving more than the whole of the rest of the European Union combined in terms of aid to uh, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon and Jordan. And we've also been running a program which seeks to bring over the most vulnerable uh, and not just the most uh, entrepreneurial into the UK. So we've actually got a policy where we go through the, you know, through the different aid agencies to the refugee camps in places like Lebanon and bring those who are most in need of help. So people, uh, often young children and often um, those with medical difficulties and bring them to the UK rather than just seeing who has got the money and the strength to get as far as Calais. Now, I appreciate these are very, very difficult decisions, but I don't think that this is a question of a moral argument. I think this is a question of a tactical argument as to how do you do the most good, the most effective good in the area. And that's where, you know, working with the governments of uh, Iraq and Jordan uh, and indeed, uh, of course, uh, Turkey and Lebanon, who are both taking huge numbers of refugees, is really important. But the most important thing you can do if you want to help the refugees in Syria is stop fueling the war. And that means standing up to Iran, standing up to Russia uh, and making sure this conflict ends. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Tom. Thanks, Oz. That was the end of part one with Tom Tugendhat MP. Now, before we begin part two, with most of us in the country currently living under a pandemic lockdown, lots of us now have a lot of free time on our hands. With that in mind, there has never been a better time to learn that new language you always promised yourself that you would. Babbel is a language learning tool that can have you confidently conversing in a new language within a matter of weeks. Babbel teaches you real-life conversations that you learn through interactive dialogues. Babbel's speech recognition technology also helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. And their teaching method has proven to be effective across multiple studies. Babbel is available as an app or online and your progress will be synced across all of your devices. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian and German. So why not check it out? Try Babbel today. Just go to babbel.co.uk or download the app for free. And now, on with part two, featuring the SMP's Stuart MacDonald MP. Hello, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. So, Stuart, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what your role is in the SMP? Sure. So, 
my role is quite unique, actually, within the SNP, not just as a group of MPs at Westminster, but in the party as a whole, uh, as the defence spokesperson. You know, if you're a, if you're an SNP member of parliament and you are covering economic policy or welfare policy or Brexit, whatever it might be, um, we have a Scottish government in Edinburgh actually implementing policies in government, uh, whereas defence is in its entirety reserved to the UK Parliament. The Scottish government has no power uh, on this at all, save for uh, the exception being veterans affairs, which uh, which we do quite a bit on through devolved government. But as far as hard defence and security matters go, uh, it falls on my shoulders and, and the shoulders of the the small defence team of MPs that we have covering these these things at, at Westminster. So our job is twofold. Um, one is to be an opposition party, obviously. Um, it's to oppose the Ministry of Defence uh, where it needs opposing, uh, support it where it should be supported, uh, and offer alternatives. Uh, and the other part of it is to look at our wider um, offer, if you like, uh, on what would the defence posture of an independent Scotland in the European Union actually look like? So the job is interesting because it falls, you know, falls entirely to to myself and the team. Um, but it's a big and it's an important job, and I'm always conscious that, you know, defence is one of those areas. It was a Labour MP who said to me actually, you know, defence never wins you any votes, but it can certainly lose you votes if you're seen not to take it seriously and, and not understand it. Um, so I'm always conscious that it, it's never going to it's never going to be a headline grabber. It's it's rarely going to be a vote clincher, but it's enormously important. And in the early discussions that an independent Scotland would have, not least with its neighbour in London, uh, would obviously want to focus on matters of, of security and defence, where there will be much much cooperation. I'm also on the Foreign Affairs Committee, so there's a whole separate element to this uh, as well. So we spoke to your colleague Tom Tugendhat uh, from the Conservative Party, um, and he scrutinised Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy from the Conservative perspective, as it were. But the SNP would position themselves left of centre. Yeah, we're 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 of the 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 kind of traditional left of centre Scottish political strand that exists. Um, we're not. We're not. Uh, we're not hard left. Um, uh, there, there are certainly things that my party and I would take a different view to Jeremy Corbyn on, as far as as foreign policy goes. Um, I'm sure we'll come to it, but the Salisbury incident and the broader issue of Russia would be an obvious one. So let's dive right in here and start with how would you assess Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy platform? Not realistic. Um, unfortunately. I mean, look, let's start with the bits where I think he has, where he is broadly right, if there are some worrying, uh, deeply worrying, actually, elements uh, in terms of how he proselytizes his own case. Sure. Um, I, I, I think he's been, he's right on the issue, in very broad terms, right on the issue of Palestine. Uh, a great injustice that almost seems like there is no solution in sight. What worries me um, is the way that he has proselytized for that over the years, and he is often he's often kind of given plaudits for you know sticking to his position and and never once changing. Um, but facts change and circumstances change, um, and also I think that I know that your podcast has 
uh, been looking quite deeply at the broader issue of anti-Semitism. Uh, but there's no question that some of the some of the people that he has surrounded himself with um, and been around uh, have have made the issue of anti-Semitism both here and elsewhere around the world much, much worse for Jewish people. So I think there are areas where we can we can say, yep, we agree, but we're going to have to depart uh, in terms of how we how we perhaps make that case uh, or would would seek to work together to advance an argument in Parliament, uh, for example. So I think there are, are things like that where I would agree with them on. Um, and then there are things that, we just fundamentally don't agree on. Um, we are very clear-eyed um, about the motivations and actions uh, of Vladimir Putin, for example. Uh, we are very clear-eyed. Uh, I know that um, Richard Bergen has a very starry-eyed, um, you know, rose-tinted view of how the Chinese Communist Party has been approaching the the current coronavirus uh, pandemic. You know, these are kind of. I want to say old-fashioned, but that almost feels like a cliche. They're, they're just ill-informed, um, ill-informed views of the world, which when you seek to be a, a party of government, and I say this as someone who represents a party of government in Scotland, but we do not aspire to be the, the party of government in the United Kingdom, obviously. But when you aspire to be a party of government, uh, better should be demanded of you and better should be forthcoming uh, in a way that it, that it that it just hasn't. Um, it, it, it kind of strikes me that it's, I mean, perhaps this is a, a bit cliched as well, but it strikes me that it's, they just go for whatever is against the what they would see as the mainstream line uh, and whatever seems to be trending amongst the various conspiracy theory blogs and outlets, outlets rather that exist, they will go for yeah, yes. I mean, I, I received a lot of pushback when I initially started covering this as a journalist several years ago, when I started pointing out that Jeremy Corbyn had given platforms to, uh, you know, members of the Assad regime who denied chemical weapons mm. use. Now, yeah. he, he actually did that as, as chair of Stop the War Coalition. That That's mm-hmm. what he did. But trying to cut through and have that debate with people... It's, it's almost like they turn off. They're not even interested in that point because all they see is, you know, he's anti-war, he's pushing for for peace and, and that mm. any, anything he did can be explained within those parameters. But it, if you if you actually inspect it, you know, there's no reason to be giving a platform to someone who denies the Assad regime uses chemical weapons. There's zero reason for that. You know, you can say, you could admit and acknowledge that Assad used chemical weapons and then still, you know, believe that there should be no response to that. That is a position that you are welcome to have, but that's not the position that Jeremy took often. He would often, you know, give succor to these conspiracy theorists. Yeah, I mean, if we take if we take Syria for example, uh, when we had the 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 Western response to chemical weapons attacks um, in two thousand and eighteen, I think that was now uh, when Parliament was in recess, uh, actually over the Easter recess, uh, and although we were we were arguing against UK involvement in that. In fact, I was on many television channels uh, at the time arguing that case. Um, the, we were, our position was different and more nuanced than, than that that Labour took at the time, which just seemed to be no to any involvement, no to any action whatsoever. What, what we have always wanted to see 
um, is a plan to bring the war to an end. Um, and I think that there is, um, there is quite often, uh, in fact, too often, an assumption um, by the UK government, and I would say this of, of Labour governments in the past as well, that rushing in with a, an armed response, a UK armed response, is the best role that they can play. We, we don't always believe that to be the case, and I didn't believe that to be the case then. Now, look, things have moved on from then quite dramatically, but I, I would say that's where our position was different from Labour, who just seemed to argue against any kind of uh, involvement at all. There is an acceptance on my part and on my party's part that there's a, there is a legitimate case to be made um, for a UK uh military in, uh, intervention. Um, I understand that these things are not easy. I don't want to shout warmonger at anyone who disagrees with me or takes a different position because these affairs are, you know, they are not black and white. They are by definition very grey and different shades of grey, which it, it strikes me just that the whole Corbyn project had a kind of um, an arrogant failure to even acknowledge. Well, also a refusal to kind of let evidence change your position on things. Now, here's something that I'd put to you. Um, while the response to Syria from the West, in my opinion, has been far below uh, what is necessary, that attack in 2018, um, the response to the chemical weapons attack, there have been no recorded confirmed con chemical weapons attacks since that happened. So in a sense, that targeted response, which took out three buildings, um, in a sense, stopped chemical weapons use from 2018 onwards. Would you take something like that on board and then use it to change your view on policy rather than, you know, the way that Labour has, well, Corbyn's side of the party has positioned itself since Iraq, but it was positioning itself against intervention in, in, you know, Bosnia, wherever, across the board. It's never changed. Whereas, you know, would you reflect on the information that no chemical weapons attacks have taken place since that targeted response and then use it to, you know, kind of understand and formulate a better response to Syria in general? Yeah, look, I think there's something in that for sure. Um, and I think we should always be open to recognising if we got something wrong. Um, I, I, tell, I tell you what, I'll, I will meet you halfway here, almost, um, which is I think that the same uh, outcome could potentially have happened without UK involvement. The UK's involvement was pretty small in comparison to France and in comparison to the United States. It was symbolic, what yes. Our argument, what our argument at the time was, and look, symbolism matters, I understand that, um, what our argument at the time was, was about the UK's uh, intervention at that point. We weren't saying that nothing should happen. I'd never advanced the argument that there should be no response. The argument I was advancing was that the UK role here, as has too often been the case, has been a rush to be involved militarily. And look, uh, there, there was also an element, I think, of the UK government wanting to make a point uh, in that this was at the height of kind of Brexit being dealt with and it didn't want to be seen to be receding from global affairs. Now, that's a legitimate viewpoint to take and it's a le it's legitimate to, to then follow that through with action. My argument was that that just perhaps for the UK wasn't necessarily the best action, but I'm willing to accept that time could have proven me wrong uh, on that one. Uh, but I still think, and, and I think you would agree with me here, uh, that what is missing 
uh, is any kind of comprehensive plan or even a desire, really, um, a proper uh, resource desire to bring this war to an end. Um, and it's not easy. You know, almost everything work, works against anyone who wants to bring this war to an end. You know, the, the UN Security Council is utterly broken. Uh, there are bad actors and bad faith, faith actors left, right and centre. It's not easy. I understand that. Uh, so sure, I'm always willing to accept that perhaps we got something wrong and we need to change or or delve in a bit deeper. Absolutely, that's how you make good policy. So it's interesting you brought up the Security Council there because um, the Security Council is one of those things that Jeremy Corbyn, you know, you would think he understands very well, especially in relation to Israel-Palestine and the settlements. You know, he understands how the US leverages its veto to achieve Ooh. policy in, in, in the Middle East. However, when it comes to Syria, his deference is automatically, oh, the Security Council, you know, we should do everything via the Security Council. And I've pointed this out in the podcast before. When it came to the intervention in Libya, now, for better or for worse, there have been significant problems since the intervention. Um, I do think that the 2011 NATO intervention is unfairly blamed for, you know, what has happened since then without any involvement from the West. Um but I will say that, again, he, he uses the UN Security Council as the sort of legitimate voice of, of military action. If there's any gonna, ever going to be any military action, it should go through the Security Council. However, Libya was UN Security Council mandated, and Jeremy Corbyn yes. still opposed that. So, mm-hmm. you know, giving Jeremy Corbyn a voice, on the, a veto on the UN Security Council would have meant that that intervention didn't take place. It's not, so, it's not you know, it's kind of that, well, I'm in opposition, so I can maintain that the UN should be in charge of everything. But the question is, what happens when you're in charge, you know? But from your perspective, the UN Security Council is broken and it can't just be relied on to yeah. make the correct call in Syria and, and Iraq and Libya. So do you think Jeremy Corbyn knew this and was actively bluffing because he knew that... Um, with Syria, nothing could ever take place because of Russia and China on the security on the Security Council. Whereas with Palestine, he would never defer straight to the UN because he knows about the American veto. Yeah, there's an intellectual dishonesty about the whole about the whole approach that is actually politically dishonest as well. It's dishonest to all of those people, particularly young people, who believe that Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, not just believes that good things are good and bad things are bad, but actually has, you know, developed a kind of policy architecture, a foreign policy architecture, uh, to help settle uh, conflict and 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 bring about peace. When in truth, I, I don't think any such um, approach or or, or detailed policy uh, actually actually exists. Now, how would you deal with Britain's relationship with NATO and how would you judge Jeremy Corbyn's position on Britain's relationship with NATO? Well, as you know, my party changed its position on NATO in 2012 um, to, uh, again, and this was in the context of the uh, referendum on on Scottish independence, uh, we changed position to say that Scotland would wish to be a member of of NATO. That was the right decision. I supported that then, I support it now. Um, it clearly makes sense given the, the UK's entire geographical position in the world uh, that it, it should be a member of NATO. NATO suffers from its challenges, um, no question of that. But I think often what drives, and I, I think this is the case for a lot of those involved in the, in the Corbyn project and perhaps on the broader kind of left across the UK, what what drives an opposition to NATO so often 
when it is illustrated is actually an ignorance of what NATO does and does not do, uh, what it is and what it is not. Um, and, you know, there is no end, obviously, of um, opponents to NATO who want to sow that, sow that confusion. So I, I, I think the, you know, I understand where, the, where his views on NATO come from. Opposing NATO is a, is a legitimate viewpoint, obviously. But again, I think it's, it's misinformed. I think it's outdated. And it takes no, no real cognizance um, of the world that we now live in. I mean, if, if the chemical weapons attack in Salisbury if the illegal occupation and annexation of parts of Ukraine and Georgia uh, can't show you uh, the relevance of uh, security and defence cooperation across the continent of Europe. Uh, If that can't change your mind, I'm not sure anything ever will. Jeremy Corbyn's early writing before he became leader of the Labour Party called for the disbandment of NATO, Britain to leave NATO. He blamed NATO for the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, you know, these are, these are blaming the West for Russia's belligerent actions, which, you know, it's, it's one, it seems just madness in a sense. But, you but know, again, it's, it's, it's dishonest to his own political positions elsewhere. You know, he has stood up for... Uh, the independence of countries all over the world, um, but not the independence and sovereignty uh, of Ukraine or of Georgia. And you know, again, we hear we hear this kind of stuff all over the place. I know your 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 good friend uh, Mr. Hitchens oft, often advances <laughs> advances a similar point. In fact, he did when I, I was in question time with him, and he, uh, not long after Salisbury he advanced a similar point. And the question I always ask these people, and it's all this stuff about how NATO is encroached east and all the rest of it, which country should have bent the knee? Yeah, should it have been Latvia? It's, ne- it it's been never Estonia. It's, it's, Who should it have been? It's never. It's never your issue, is it? It's always someone else's problem. Yeah, and it's, it's always, no, it's always someone else's. It's always someone else's, and it's. But again, that 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 jars with, as you point out. Uh, in the way he approaches what the Security Council may or may not say on a certain issue, it jars with you know the fact he has fought for the sovereignty um, of several other countries uh, around the world, including uh, Syria, including Syria. Um, so he's, he, I, I, I don't know what to say that hasn't already been said. I mean, it, well, it's, I it's, mean, one, it's, one of the things that I found quite stark. Um, was that in an interview, Jeremy Corbyn um, said that he would support Russian peacekeepers deploying to Syria um, before before they actually did. And his, I published that in an article, and the, uh, his press office complained and had a, had an amendment to the article made that Jer- what Jeremy Corbyn meant to say, uh, you know, in a thick of it style, you know, yeah. oh, he was actually supporting international peacekeepers. He said Russian peacekeepers. He was talking about Russian peacekeepers. But the thing that I find interesting is... The idea that Russia was invited by the sovereign government of Syria to, you know, to take part in military intervention there. But we've had similar situations around the world. The Vietnamese government invited the, the Americans into to intervene. Ooh. You know, the, the, the Saudi government have been invited by the Yemeni government. But he would never support those ideas, not in principle, not morally, not ethically, not strategically. And he's probably right to, you know, I don't, the, the Saudi intervention in Yemen has been a disgrace. Uh, the war in Vietnam is a, is a well-written fiasco. Um but yes. being invited in by a sovereign power doesn't 
doesn't mean it's legitimate. You know, what's happening in Syria isn't a legitimate intervention by the Russian government. It's an invasion and bombardment of a civilian population. It's, and again, it's, if, it, it, all of this, if you, if, you go back to, if you go back to the situation in Ukraine, uh, it, it's a similar thing. You know, we have... We have um, I remember when the Russian... Uh, naval forces uh, commandeered Ukrainian boats at the Kerch Strait a couple of years ago at Christmas time, if you remember. Yes, I do. And the line, the line from uh, from Corbyn's spokesperson uh, in Parliament at the time was a call for both sides to de-escalate. Both sides to de-escalate. Now I'm not sure how you de-escalate when you're the one being invaded. Um, so again, there is a there's a dishonesty in the approach. You know, we have Russian monitors, for example. In Eastern Ukraine, as part of the OSCE, OSCE mission, there was labour support to bring Russia back into the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, one of the main human rights bodies that exists on the continent. Again, utterly dishonest uh, in terms of in terms of the bigger picture stuff that he says he wants to achieve. You know, world peace, prosperity, and all the rest of it. Um, so it it. it, it Often it, this stuff is just written off as, as out of date. I think it's far worse than that. Far worse. So you might find yourself agreeing with your conservative colleague here in uh, when Tom said that, you know, Corbyn's view of the world is split into spheres of influence, um, imperialist versus anti-imperialist, and whoever's on the anti-imperialist side, be it Russia, China, whatever, is always the victim compared to whoever's the aggressor on the imperialist side which seems a very binary and totally useless way of viewing the world. Um, would you agree that, that that sort of sums up Jeremy's position? I mean, see, it, it seems to make sense considering how he, he views belligerence from Russia versus belligerence from the United States. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is a hangover from a time where, you know, approaching uh, international uh, affairs uh it was easy to do in that fashion, and he clearly still has that hangover. Um, so, yes, I would agree with Tom on that. Um, for sure, I would agree with Tom on that. And I, I think it's a shame. You know, there are, there are good people in Labour who understand the world, um, who I won't always agree with. We won't always come to the, the same conclusions. But a time where the world needs to be better understood, and look, I don't sit here to pretend I have the answers, um, to the the multitude of complexities that exist, I don't. Um, but you know, it does occur to me from time to time that maybe my opponent will, uh, and I don't think that thought has ever crossed Jeremy Corbyn's mind that perhaps his opponent has a point. So the Skripal poisoning was was one incident. You know, Britain was was attacked essentially by the Russian state, um, and what we saw in Parliament after that happened was the opposition parties uniting with the government in formulating a response, you know, a strong united response. And the outlier there, you know, was Jeremy Corbyn. It wasn't just, it wasn't the Labour Party who were all singing from the same hymn sheet. It was Jeremy Corbyn who was asking, have we sent samples of this nerve agent yes. to, to Russia? Now, loads of people I've spoken to on the podcast so far uh, from the Labour side has said this really, really damaged the party's standing. Can you talk to mm. me a bit about um, the response to the Skripal poisoning and um, and more a philosophical question. Um, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy lost him votes 
um, you know, because he, you know they're talking about winning the argument in a sense uh, on the on the economic side, whether or not that has any merit to it. Let, let's leave that aside. Ooh. Let's talk about whether their foreign policy, you know, the Hezbollah Hamas friends thing, the IRA, Skripal, did these things paint a picture of Jeremy Corbyn in the electorate's mind that this was not a man that could be trusted with uh, national security and foreign policy? So on Salisbury, on the response to Salisbury, um, I mean, you're, you're right to paint it as you did. The outlier was, was Jeremy and members of his front bench. Um, admittedly, there were some exceptions. I just think a chemical weapons attack has a way of cutting through bullshit, if I'm allowed to swear. Yeah, you are. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, it cuts through all the noise and the public understand it very quickly. Um, a lot better than, than some politicians. So that kind of segues nicely into your, your second question. Um, I said at the start of this that, you know, defence policy rarely wins you votes, but it can certainly lose you votes. I, I, would, I would go so far as to say the same on, on foreign policy more broadly. People want to know that you understand the world, yes, um, but it's, it, for very few people, is that going to be uh, the determining factor on where their cross lands? But, but there was obviously um, a, a, an enormous amount of stuff to troll over on not just the policy positions, but the people with whom uh, Jeremy chose to associate with over many, many. Uh, years. And yes, that did cut through. You know, I would go, I, remember I come from a constituency that has only voted Labour um, since the early 19, sorry, since the late 1970s. And it's a solid working class constituency in Glasgow, an old Labour city. And I would chap and doors people who weren't necessarily uh, supporters of the SNP. But they were so horrified by Jeremy Corbyn on everything from from the people he had associated with to the anti-Semitism fiasco to his generally, you know, kind of poor performance as leader that that said they just could not vote Labour. Uh, so I don't know if his foreign policy positions lost him votes, but there were so many examples of him being on the wrong side with the wrong people Yes, I think to an extent it did cut through uh, with folk, and also the way that it was it was almost presented um, in an entirely false way when he tried to rebut some of this stuff. You know, I, I don't doubt for a minute uh, that Jeremy Corbyn wanted peace in Ireland. Uh, I, I don't think think he wanted uh, anything but deep down. But to present him his his record on that issue as having only ever worked with peace when his entire engagement was only with one side. Uh, I think uh, I think it, it's it's I think it's dishonest uh, to present it in that fashion to seek to present it in that fashion. Um, and I think that you know I hope he I hope he has a good retirement. I don't wish the man any ill whatsoever. But I hope he looks back on some of this stuff. Uh, and I hope Labour can learn from it. I certainly think other parties can can learn from this as well. Um, and yeah, try and uh, try and approach foreign policy um, in a in a way that's very different to the way that Labour has been approaching it the past few years. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
That was the end of part two featuring Stuart McDonald. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy. And now for part three, featuring Robin Cook's former foreign policy advisor, David Clark. Hello, David. Thanks so much for joining us. Yep, you're welcome. So um, before we start, can you tell us a bit about what your role was in the Labour Party? Yes, well, I uh, was uh, a research assistant in uh, the early 1990s working for Labour's defence team. And in 1994, after Tony Blair became Labour leader and the reshuffle that followed, I started working for Robin Cook, who'd just been appointed as um, the Shadow Foreign Secretary. And I worked with him uh, primarily on European-related issues, the EU, but also uh, the um, the Balkan wars that were happening at the time. Um, and in 1997, when Labour won the uh, general election, I went into the Foreign Office as one of his special advisors. And I uh, served there for the full first term of the Blair government before leaving office. So obviously you've been in the Labour Party for a long time. What was your impression of uh, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, in the early days under the Blair government? Well, of course, uh, I joined the Labour Party in 1985. uh, And the reason I joined was largely because I saw Labour realigning towards um, a kind of politics that I identified with uh, under Neil Kinnock's leadership. Um, And at that time, there was an enormous rearguard action by elements of the Labour Party that did not want to uh, move uh, politically towards uh, a more mainstream position, a more electable position. Um, they coalesced around the campaign group, um, being the part of the Benite constituency that didn't accept the premise that Labour needed to change. Um, and of course, Jeremy Corbyn at that time was, was one of the leading lights of the campaign group and remains so. Uh, right throughout the rest of his uh, his career up to uh, to date, um, and uh, yes, I mean they they tried to resist the changes that were taking place um, under Neil Kinnock, and obviously continued to do so under Tony Blair. So Jeremy Corbyn's opposition to the war in Iraq was one of the most cited reasons for his early popularity um, when he entered the leadership contest. But obviously Robin Cook was famous for resigning from the cabinet over the war in Iraq. So, you know, can you talk to me about Jeremy Corbyn's position really in the in the actual opposition to the war in Iraq? It's something we haven't really covered in the podcast, but, you know, it would it would seem to the outsider that maybe Robin Cook and Jeremy Corbyn might be natural allies. Well, uh, there was there was um, a, a working relationship between them. Uh, Robin always maintained contact with the campaign group. Um, he was always very clear about where he disagreed with them. Uh, there were significant dis- areas of disagreement, including some areas of ingre- agreement. Um, and they got on well in, in, in personal terms. But there was a fundamental difference in the, the, the motives uh, behind opposition to the Iraq war between Robin and and people like Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, The the wing of the Labour Party that Jeremy Corbyn belongs to uh, opposes wars uh, almost as a matter of principle. I mean, they deny it, but uh, it's impossible to see in their records any um, evidence that they assess Western military intervention on its merits. They approach uh, these questions reflexively, which is to say that they they regard Western military action as inherently illegitimate and therefore wrong in principle. That's obviously not where Robin Cook was coming from at all. 
Um, uh, he supported military intervention uh, to stop ethnic cleansing in the, the war in Bosnia. Uh, he was a, a leading proponent, I would say. He led the way um, in making the argument within Labour uh, for intervention to stop Milosevic doing the same thing in Kosovo. Um, uh, more so than, I, than than Tony Blair, I would say, uh, at least early on. Um, and uh, so he, he was open to the idea that there was, in, in the right conditions, uh, a case for the West to use its military power uh, to pursue certain political goals. They couldn't be self-interested goals, and they couldn't be defined exclusively by Western interests. They would have to be in fulfillment of some wider um, objective defined by the values of the international community. Um, and where Robin departed really from uh, from Tony Blair over the Iraq war was that uh, he felt that uh, this was um, a, 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 a military adventure that was motivated by Western self-interest, first and foremost, and not rooted in uh, wider goals that, that, uh, that, um, that military interventions of that kind would, would need. Um, and he felt that the, the threshold for international support for uh, an intervention of that kind would always have to be high, and that in the case of Iraq, it had not been met. Now, he didn't fetishize the UN Security Council, far from it, because the the, the um, military action against Serbia over Kosovo didn't have a, a UN mandate. But he always felt that the threshold fraction would, would have to be very high in terms of its multilateral support, because in the case of Kosovo, we had the support of NATO, we had the support of every member of the EU, we had the support of every one of uh, Kosovo and Serbia's neighbours. So in Robert's view, that the tests had been met. Um, but in, in the case of Iraq... Um, he, he felt that the, the support was not there for action at that time. So you brought up Kosovo, which was an interesting example, because Jeremy Corbyn was absolutely opposed to intervention in Kosovo, um, even going so far as to sign an early day motion after the fact in 2004, uh, denying the existence of mass graves in in the country based on a, you know, a John Pilger piece. Um, you know, so what's your take on... Jeremy's position during during the the Balkan War and and what he was sort of trying to push politically from the, from inside the Labour Party. You can't really understand the 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 way that people like Jeremy Corbyn and his wing of the Labour Party approach these issues unless you understand the the, the philosophical underpinnings of them. Um, they operate according to what I would regard as a fairly crude anti-imperialist view of the world. Um, it's almost a sort of inversion of the neoconservative view of the world, whereas neoconservatives see the West as being uniquely virtuous and uniquely equipped and, and um, permitted to act on the world stage, including using force. Uh, the anti-imperialists, or uh, we should say anti-Western imperialists, uh, like Jeremy Corbyn, see the, the West as being uniquely wicked and uniquely and singularly to blame for the for the world's problems, um, and therefore automatically disqualified from acting, even for purposes which, on the surface of it, might seem to be altruistic, like defending human rights. Because in their view, behind the language of human rights, there is always self-interest, there is always oppression, there is always the imperialist agenda. Um, so for them, you know, the 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 um, 
arguments about Western military intervention don't require very close examination because they already have in their own minds a fixed mental template for assessing them, which to say which is to say that they are illegitimate in principle. So Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the joke in Westminster is he always considered himself the foreign secretary of the left. Um, you know, long before he ever had aspirations of becoming prime minister. So what do you think foreign policy under Jeremy Corbyn would have looked like? Well, it's a, it's a slightly moot point now, and I often wondered that myself, uh, because I think there was a difference uh, between Jeremy Corbyn and, and some of the people around him. Uh, I think um, some of his advisers and some of the people that um, were most important to his uh, political support um, uh, would would have want would have wanted to align the UK with a disruptive um, um, anti-Western agenda, um, and and in their own way were the inheritors of uh, a, a really quite uh, unpleasant form of power politics, which was represented by the the most hardline elements, obviously of the of the Soviet Union as was. I think Corbyn himself um, is a sincere believer in 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 human rights. Um, but because uh, his politics were underpinned by this very rigid anti-imperialist mental framework, he operated in, in, in very myopic ways, which is to say that he um, um, airbrushed out of his own mental picture any misdeeds done by non-Western political actors uh, because he didn't believe that they were the point. However horrific they may be, he didn't regard them as being the point. The point uh, of um, uh, the reason for uh, uh, all of the ills of the world um, were, were to be laid at the door of the West. And therefore, everything had to be focused on Western misdeeds, correcting Western mistakes, reigning in Western power. Um, uh, and that, that, was, that, that was what allowed him, I think, to operate in a way, for example, that meant he could meet with Hezbollah and Hamas and deal with the Iranian regime and speak on their uh, broadcast outlets. Um, uh, it, it's a form of cognitive dissonance, obviously. Um, but I never felt with Jeremy Corbyn that, that, that his support for human rights was was insincere. Uh, I just think it was it was distorted and suppressed by a, a, a deeper political instinct which which um which which meant that he, he he never applied those principles consistently do you think there's a hypocrisy in the way jeremy corbyn deals with human rights in say saudi arabia as opposed to human rights in iran i do i do it's it's a double standard and it's a double standard that that um emerges from this this perspective that i described this anti-imperialist template mental template that he has um he sees western allies uh, or governments that the west is willing to do business with like saudi arabia as an extension of western wickedness um and therefore needs to be dealt with uh, in, in appropriately uh, aggressive terms um he sees the misdeeds of countries that are not western allies and in some cases are opposed by the west and and oppose the West in return as, as being not really their fault uh, because the world as we have it is not, uh, is not shaped by them. Uh, they're responding imperfectly to a world which is framed and shaped by Western imperialism. So any mistakes that they make are not really their responsibility. That's, that's how he would see it in a very instinctive way. So this is, this is what allows him to apply this double standard. He would see himself really as, a, as applying a single standard, but in reality, He's treating these two countries differently because he doesn't see them on equivalent terms.
So I know it's not technically foreign policy, but Northern Ireland during the Troubles, Jeremy Corbyn had some very strong opinions uh, during that time. Can you talk me through your position on that? Well, I underwent a change on this, really. I mean, I, I was extremely angry with a lot of the things that um, Jeremy Corbyn and, and uh, Ken Livingston did in the 1980s to uh, engage politically with the political wing of an organisation that was killing civilians and British troops uh, and engaging in really quite barbaric forms of terrorism uh, at that time. Um, uh, but um, the fact is that in the 1990s, we engaged in a peace process with those very people. Um, and we discovered belatedly that at the time that Jeremy Corbyn and others were being attacked for engaging with Sinn Féin, that the government that insisted it would never talk to terrorists was doing exactly that. It was talking through back channels to the IRA to try and achieve a political agreement. So I have more sympathy for Jeremy Corbyn uh, here than I think a lot of people would. Um, uh, I think it's true to say that what Jeremy Corbyn was arguing for at that time was exactly the form of political engagement uh, that um, uh, that uh, later led to the Good Friday Agreement. I think some of the claims that he was responsible for the peace process are, are, are flawed and wrong, but it can't be denied that he argued for it at a time when he was being viciously attacked uh, by the very people who later did exactly what they attacked him for doing. Um, so I, I've always felt that it was a little bit um, uh, unfair uh, to, to constantly go back to uh, Jeremy Corbyn's positions in the 1980s, because um, although I don't think they were completely vindicated, I don't think they reflect as badly on him as, as some people seem to think. Do you think part of the problem is that Jeremy Corbyn um, has shown or expressed political solidarity with armed groups at times in the past? Yes, I think that uh, uh, he, he certainly allowed that appearance to be created. Um, whatever his motives, and I think, as I said before, he genuinely um, believed in a, in, a, in, a, in a world based on uh, universal human rights. Um, uh, the fact is that this, uh, this uh, mental, uh, rigid mental uh, vision of the world uh, meant that he was willing to engage with and talk to and associate with groups that um, were, uh, were were much worse in in many ways than any of the things that he accused the West of doing. Um, so I think that tarnished his uh, uh, message. I think it uh, meant that uh, the sorts of things that he uh, wanted to talk about the way he wanted to be seen by others um, was, was, was undermined uh, in, in that process uh, because it didn't seem to be um, an argument for uh, a better world order or an ethical foreign policy. It seemed to be um, a policy of reflexively aligning with anyone who uh, opposed the West, however um, uh, um, poor their own uh, respect for human rights uh, was um, so yes. I think that was that was a that was a, a big element of of um, of his of his problem in, in in presenting his foreign policy to others. Jeremy Corbyn's response to the Skripal poisoning um, was really badly received by the electorate, by his own party, you know, by the country generally. So, what was your take on it? 
Well, I think here you're seeing Jeremy Corbyn struggle with the cognitive dissonance uh, that I described before, which is to say that he could see uh, that in all probability the Russian state had been responsible for an appalling uh, attack on on British soil using a, um, a chemical weapon um, and uh, uh, couldn't f fit those facts into his preconceived view of the world, which is that everything bad that happens must be the responsibility of the West. Um, so his, uh, his initial response was uh, not to deny that it had happened uh, openly, but to play for time and to raise questions and to obfuscate uh, in a way that made it, I think, quite clear to everyone that he just had real difficulty turning his criticism uh, onto uh, a non-Western government, indeed one that was uh, actively hostile to the West, um, specifically because it would mean that he would have to sign up to whatever countermeasures and responses the British government and its allies uh, chose. So I think I think that's what you were seeing there. So that's interesting that you said that, um, because another example is following the chemical weapons attack in August 2013 in Syria, Jeremy Corbyn started providing platforms to chemical weapons deniers, even some explicitly associated with the Assad regime. It seemed like his immediate response to the war in Syria, which had already been raging for two years, was just to stop any response to this chemical weapons attack. And that meant, you know, if that meant giving sucker to the view that the that the whole thing was a false flag conspiracy theory, then so be it. You know, do you think he really um, believes in those sorts of conspiracies? Or do you think he just finds himself in alignment with these people because they fit into that worldview of his? It's a coping mechanism. Uh, here is something that has happened that can't be explained by his own uh, outlook and his own framework of thinking. Um, so let's think of reasons why this might not have happened. Uh, that, 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 that's, how, that's how he will have approached it. Let's raise questions. Let's raise doubt. Uh, let's throw up a smokescreen so that we don't have to confront uh, the fact that there is a government that is doing things far worse than we routinely blame the West for doing. That isn't uh, um, the fault of Western imperialism. Um, I can't follow, th you know, he, he would have thought, I can't follow through uh, here to the conclusion that action must be taken, uh, partly because it would be action not only taken uh, by the West, but against a country that isn't part of the West. Um, and therefore, it doesn't fit. Um, so let's try and find some way of, 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 of squaring the circle. Uh, I think that's, I think that's what you're seeing there. How does that fit with his claim that he's on the side of human rights and the claim from activists that he's always been on the right side of history? Well, um, I think if you uh, oppose wars on a matter of, matter of principle, eventually you're going to be right in opposing a war that should be opposed. Uh, he's, uh, he was right on the right side of history uh, in the case of the Iraq war, but for the wrong reasons. Um, and he was wrong on many other occasions in opposing wars that, that, that were necessary. Um, so, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I do, I do think that uh, deep down his political motive, uh, is, is, uh, is, is a concern for human rights, but distorted by this very, um, uh, um, 
I'm trying to find the right word. It's distorted by this this um, rigid anti-imperialist view, um, and therefore and therefore can't be followed through consistently. Do you think he favours state sovereignty over human rights? Then, when those states are non-Western aligned, um, I think he regards the debate about state sovereignty as being. Um, a Western device for intervening against states when it suits them and not intervening against other states when it doesn't suit them. Um, I think he probably regards it as, as, a, as a, that whole responsibility to protect um, uh, argument as being simply an extension of, of uh, Western self-interest, um, enabling the, the West to act when, when it wants to and, and, and to not act when it doesn't. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I mean the state, the sovereignty of states that are not part of the West, he would defend rigorously against any encroachment from international organisations that he regards as being Western dominated. What do you think foreign leaders would have made of Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister? Depends on the foreign leaders. Um, obviously, I think uh, uh, there are some countries that would have uh, welcomed uh, his arrival. Uh, Iran, for example, uh, Venezuela. I think Putin would have seen him as a big opportunity uh, to try and uh, pursue some of his own goals and objectives within the Western camp. Um, but I think the uh, the UK's traditional partners, um, and I'm not here just talking about the, the European and North American partners, I'm talking about more widely in the world, um, they would have regarded his arrival with some trepidation, if not dismay. Uh, because they will have seen uh, in some of his comments um, someone who is not uh, willing to uh, adhere to some of the um, uh, goals and policies that uh, uh, have allowed uh, Western countries and, and others to come together at crucial times to pursue common goals. They will have seen it as a weakening of the uh, multilateral framework, a further weakening of the multilateral framework, uh, one that's already been weakened uh, by the rise of populists, mainly on the right, uh, not least Donald Trump. So it would have been another blow to those who, who um, consider the liberal international world order as being something that's of value, even if it's not perfect. What do you think Corbynism got right? Uh, I think... Um, uh, I would credit him with uh, returning some sense of idealism and radicalism to domestic policy. Um, Labour had become uh, too technocratic, um, and too managerial um, in its approach to government by the end uh, of its uh, term in 2010. I think a lot of thinking New Labour people uh, accept that and, and say it. Uh, I don't think I'm being particularly controversial. I don't think I'm being anti-Blair or anti-New Labour by saying that. Um, I think Jeremy Corbyn spoke to people who wanted to restore uh, the idea of Labour as a, as a mission for change uh, in, in UK society. Uh, but it became badly distorted. It became... Um, you know, uh, it became cult-like in its in its behaviour in many in many ways. Uh, it became uh, more and more defensive and closed off from uh, other currents of political thought and from uh, 
legitimate and constructive criticism as time went on. Um, and I don't think it was ever really a viable basis for restoring uh, uh, a radical Labour government as a vehicle for change because it, the, the, the point is that Labour has to both embody a sense of idealism but also uh, a, a practical programme for achieving, uh, translating that radicalism into into real change as, as a government. Uh, and there was no point really, uh, even uh, when it appeared to come close in, in 2017, there was no sense that it was really uh, capable of, of, of doing that or making the, the final, uh, uh, taking it to the final stage. So um, I hope that what follows uh, will be um, uh, a significant change and a significant realignment, but not one that tries to return to a, 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 um, a very dry managerial uh, style of, of politics. Uh, Labour has to has to encapsulate um, uh, an ide- a sense of idealism if it's to be uh, a, a movement that uh, that captures the imagination enough to govern. And indeed, it did in in, in between ninety four and ninety seven. Tony Blair managed to do it. it. It's not as if this is uh, this is I'm saying something that's particularly unique. Tony Blair did embody um, uh, a hope and an, an idealism at that time. Um, that needs to be recaptured and also needs to be retained in office. That's and that's 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 a difficult part. How would you have compared Robin Cook's foreign policy with Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy vision? And what do you think the next Labour leader needs to do to recapture an ethical, progressive foreign policy for the left? The big difference for me between uh, what Robin Cook was trying to do and the sorts of things that Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, was advocating is that Robin applied his values on a, on a universal basis. He didn't operate within this Manichaean framework of seeing the world divided between um, a wicked imperialist West and the rest. Um, he saw uh, the West as being flawed in many uh, respects in its engagement with the rest of the world. He was a critic of Western foreign policy during the Cold War. He didn't resolve from that at all, but he didn't uh, accept that that meant that um, the answer was for the West to withdraw from the world um, it, uh, uh, let alone for Western multilateral institutions to be dismantled or blunted. Um, he saw the, 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 the way forward as being for the West to act in, in, in a much more uh, multilateral, values-based way, to be consistent in applying its values uh, in, 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 to a much greater extent. Um, so that, 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 was, that, I think, was the main difference. As for what should happen now, I have some real difficulties. You know, in 97, Robin Cook inserted this phrase in the Labour Manifesto about making Britain a force for good in the world, um, because that was, you know, that was where Britain's real interest lay in trying to make the world around us a better place. It would be something that would make Britain safer, more prosperous, um, more engaged uh, and connected with the world, and therefore much more secure. Um, I find it very difficult now to imagine how Britain can be a force for good in the context of Brexit. Uh, The UK, for the foreseeable future, is, is likely to be a disruptive element within uh, multilateral institutions and within the Western camp. Um, my advice to an incoming Labour government would be to avoid doing any more damage to Western multilateral institutions than we've already done 
and over time try and rebuild what's been destroyed. Uh, but it's a very, very uninspiring uh, prospectus, and it's a very long-term one. Um, I'm now at the point where I think uh, perhaps one of the most progressive things that could happen uh, would be for the UK to break up. And I say that as much for English reasons as for any other reasons, because what struck me most of all during the um, the Brexit debate was the way that its uh, proponents fell back on lazy historical myths about uh, Britain's past, and particularly about the Second World War, actually, not so much Britain's imperial past, but this mythology of the UK standing alone and surviving and thriving against all comers. This was uh, uh, this is a disruptive and cor corrupting myth. Um, and I think, uh, I wonder whether the English are capable uh, of, of cutting through that, uh, that fog of historical myth and understanding themselves and their place in the world clearly without the cathartic um, episode of the UK breaking up. Um, I'm at the point now where I think it would probably be a, a constructive and necessary thing to happen. Uh, but of course, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big step and it's, a, it's not something that um, is likely to lead to immediate or short-term um, change. Um, and for me, it's it's quite a it's quite a radical and disconcerting conclusion to come to. What a note to end on! Thank you so much for joining us, David. Yes, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to Corbynism: The Postmortem. I'd like to thank my guests Tom Tugendhat, Stuart McDonald, and David Clark for joining us. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com/oscatergy. See you next time. <laughs>